0: Thanks for watching today at wildwoodchurch.com. Now here's today's message. Good morning, Wildwood. Turn your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 30. In my message last week, I had a paragraph that I didn't quite get to. I didn't have time to get to it last week, so I want to read it for you this week. Um, I, I wrote, when a church's leaders are doing what they're called to do as biblical elders, And when the members of the church are doing what they're called to do, it becomes a force in the world, a gospel force. It transforms families, it impacts the community. It's doing much more than simply existing. And now this was in light of what I, of how I read Ephesians chapter four, verses 11 through 16, where Paul talks about the body when it's working together properly, builds itself up in love. The Lord gave the church leaders to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So you have shepherds and you have saints. That's what the the church consists of, shepherds and saints. And Paul says when when each part is working properly, when the shepherds are shepherding, when the saints are working, when, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow So that it builds itself up in love. That's how I described our strategy last week. Equip the saints and send them out. We equip the saints here. We gather to be equipped and we're sent out on mission. I want to note again in that Ephesians 4 passage, the shepherds and the saints, because that's going to form the basis of our first two core values that we're going to talk about this morning uh, elders and members, saints and shepherds. These are two things that I want to speak to this week. They represent two of the four core values. Now, let me just, at the outset, talk about what core values are. Core values are why we do what we do. We all have core values. Every one of us has core values that drive us, that cause us to do what we do. The mission of Wildwood Church is... To connect people to God through the gospel of Jesus Christ, to others through discipleship, to the church through partnership, and to purpose through service. That's the mission. That's what we do. And the vision is where we're going, every member of missionary. I hope and pray that the Lord gets us to that place, just like he's gotten us to the place where we can say that these four things that I'll talk about today as core values, which began as vision five years ago. But the core values represent why we do what we do. We do the things we do because of what we value. It's because we believe the gospel and because it is our responsibility to protect the gospel and propel the gospel that we value biblical eldership and meaningful membership. I wanna read here Acts chapter 20 and then I'll share with you what I mean. Paul said in, well, it's Luke who's writing this, but it's Paul who's speaking to the elders of the church of Ephesus. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28 through 30, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. Which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Let's pray. And and, you know, before we pray, I want to let you know that last night we had a funeral here uh, for the uh, Clark family, and Aaron Clark. Who grew up in Port Byron, uh, was 35 years old, almost 35 years old, passed away suddenly in her home in uh, California, and we did her funeral last night. A tragedy uh, to see someone uh, so young uh, perish. And uh, Pastor Jared did a wonderful job. He grew up with Aaron, knew her for 30 years or for 20 years, um, and he came and uh, and did her funeral last night and, and really helped us to process that. You know, there, there are some things that, you know, everyone, the loss of anyone is, is painful, but there are some that you say, well, they, they suffered for so long, this was a relief, um, uh, or, or they lived a, a good life, and, 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 and this makes sense. It's, it's normal, it's natural. Uh, but then you have a situation in which a 35 year old woman uh, just collapses in her apartment and perishes, and that doesn't make any sense. Uh, and so we want to pray for the Clark family this morning. Father, we thank you for your grace. And Lord, we know that. Oh, Father, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. Father, I'm thankful that that Erin knows Jesus and knew Jesus when she was alive and knows him uh, perfectly now. And Lord, it's our hope that uh, we will see her again in heaven. And I pray for her family, Lord, that you would bless them with peace and comfort and joy in the midst of this sorrow. I pray, Father, you be glorified in her family's life, in her legacy, in her testimony. And I pray, Father, that you would bless now the preaching and the teaching of your word and how we respond to it. Help us, Lord, to take seriously the charge to protect and propel the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. So that, that warning that Paul gave to the elders at Ephesus in Acts chapter 28 was sort of like an apostolic handoff from the Apostle Paul to the elders of the church. And it's a warning. It's a sober warning it's a warning to elders to faithfully shepherd the flock of God in which the Holy Spirit has made them overseers. That's what he says. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. He says, be careful, be faithful in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. You see here that this is not, this is not something that people just enter into. Well, what do I want to do? Well, I want to shepherd a church No, the Holy Spirit makes a man a shepherd of the church of God. Now, the warning is given to elders, and the warning concerns shepherding their specific church. It's an identifiable church. Paul says, pay careful attention not to Christians. This isn't a blanket statement. This is not just just saying, well, hey, if, if there's a Christian in the world, you should pay careful attention to them. No, it says, pay careful attention to your flock. You know, it's like rental cars because, no one, because, because everyone owns them, no one owns them. No one cares for rental cars. Why? Because it's not yours. Maybe it's yours for a moment, but it's not yours. And Paul says, pay careful attention to your flock, the flock that the Lord has put you in, uh, over to, to oversee. Pay careful attention to them. There was a specific, identifiable church that the Apostle Paul had in mind when he spoke to these elders. And who was that? What what church was that? What was their church? It was the church in Ephesus. It was the church they had come from. They knew who they were supposed to shepherd. It wasn't a question of who they were going to give account for. Now, from this passage, we can glean a few things that help us understand what biblical eldership is and what meaningful membership is. First of all, We believe that Jesus intends his church to be led by a plurality of elders. That's the first thing, a plurality of elders. Now, Paul says, pay careful attention to who? Verse 28, to yourselves, that's plural. He had called the elders of the church of Ephesus and said, pay careful attention to yourselves. That's what Paul intended when he he planted church and when he left Titus to appoint elders in every church. He says in, first, in Titus 1.5, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. That was Paul's intention, appoint elders in every church. And it's also what Paul practiced in Acts chapter 14, verse 23, It says, when when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So we believe that biblical eldership begins with understanding that a church is to be led by a plurality of qualified men. Now, one of those qualifications, the one that distinguishes elders from deacons, is the ability to teach the word of God. 1 Timothy 3.2, the qualification says, therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, hospitable, able to teach. It's not a bonus when a lay elder or when an elder is able to teach. That's not a nicety. It's not an add-on. It's not a bonus. That's a baseline qualification. All elders must be able to to teach and not like in the sense of if you give me curriculum once in a while, I can stumble through the curriculum to a Sunday school class. No, these are men that the Lord has called and equipped to faithfully and carefully teach the word of God. Now, aside from managing his home his own household well. Teaching is the only thing that elders are biblically, are required to do as a qualification. We must manage our household well and we must be able to teach the word of God. And why is that? It's because of the threat of false teaching. I want you to note the warning here. What does Paul say? He says, I want you to pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock why? I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. The best way to protect the flock from false teaching is right teaching. Rightly dividing the word of God. Having several men who can rightly divide the word of God and who are given equal authority helps protect the church against false teaching. Teaching the word is the priority of an elder. We get this priority not only from the qualifications, but most notably from Peter's example How does Peter respond to a noble distraction in the church? Peter was there with Jesus in John 21. And Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? He replied, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Three times, same question, same response. Jesus responds each time, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. Now that would leave an indelible mark, I think, in in the mind of the apostle Peter. Jesus has restored Peter to faithful service after he's denied him three times, and here's a threefold restoration back into ministry. And Jesus says, if you love me, Peter, I want you to feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Now in Acts chapter 6, the church has grown to over 3,000 people and there's a logistical problem in the church. The uh, the Greek widows were being neglected in the distribution of the food. So there was a feeding problem. The, The issue was regarding food and feeding. And the complaint rises up to leadership. And now Peter, as the leader of the church, has to decide, how do I interpret what Jesus clearly and plainly told me on the beach? Feed my sheep. I think it's no no accident that the first crisis in the church had to do with feeding the widows. Peter had a decisive moment here. He had to decide, how am I going to use my time? How am I going to be faithful to Jesus? How am I going to lead this church? Am I going to feed the widows? Am I going to go and serve tables? Peter says, it is not right that we should go and serve tables, but instead raise up seven dignified, godly, trustworthy men and have them feed the widows. But he says in Acts 6, 4, but we, meaning the elders of the church, the apostles at that time, the leaders of the church, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Peter rightly understood that the priority of a shepherd, what Jesus meant when he said, feed my sheep, was prayerfully teaching the word of God. But listen, it's not as though shepherds can faithfully teach the word of God by popping in on a Sunday morning and popping back out. That's a contradiction of terms. A shepherd cannot faithfully teach the word of God by popping in on a Sunday morning and popping back out. I like to say a shepherd needs to smell like the sheep. A, A faithful shepherd must and will smell like the sheep. Why is that? Because so much of of the Bible is about how we live. And how how can a shepherd faithfully teach the word of God if he's not practicing it himself? And much of it is about interacting. How do we do the one another's? So the next qualification or the next thing that we believe about biblical eldership is that elders must lead by setting an example. In 1 Peter 5, 3, which I, I take to be kind of the, the, the quintessential uh, job description for an elder. First Peter, in 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4, but here's verse 3. Peter exhorts the elders, whom he calls fellow elders. He says, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Peter's concern is that the elders would be an example to the flock. Paul also told told Titus in Titus 2.6, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And again, in Philippians 3.17, Paul says, brothers, join in imitating me. Now this, this he's speaking to the church. Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. There's a reason that in our, in our church covenant we talk about keeping an eye on their way of life, on the elder's way of life, and let their faithfulness as well as truthfulness teach us the role of an elder is not only to stand and to preach, but to set an example. To live or to practice what they preach we are to set an example worthy of being followed. The primary task of an elder is to faithfully preach the word of God, that is true. But it's impossible to faithfully teach the word without living it yourself. That would be a contradiction of terms. Elders are going to answer for this someday. James warns in one. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Everyone who teaches the word of God is gonna to answer to Jesus for how they handled the word of God, and it's implied that they're going to give account for how they led the people of God through the teaching of his word. That's the heart behind what we read in Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Which says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. That's another sober warning to elders. You can read it any way you want to, but when I read that, I see a sober warning to elders. What I see is those who will give an account. When I read this, I realize that I'm going to give an account for shepherding your souls to Jesus Christ. Leaders, according to verse 7 of Hebrews 13, are those who teach the word of God. So this is a warning to every elder who enters the office, who accepts the title, but has no desire to faithfully teach the word of God. It's a warning that they will give an account for the souls of those whom they shepherded. These men are going to stand before Jesus, and we will all give an account. Those who execute the duties of the office faithfully and humbly and willingly and selflessly and, and set an example will receive what Peter calls an unfading crown of glory in 1 Peter 5.4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. But once again, I I read in that and I see when the chief shepherd reappears. When the the chief shepherd, which is who? Jesus. When Jesus comes back, there's going to be an assessment. There's going to be an accounting of all the elders, of all who step into the office of spiritual leader and shepherd the souls of the church now those that do it faithfully what a magnificent thought we're going to receive an unfading crown of glory whatever that is i don't know but i want that if you read between the lines those that don't i think about first corinthians chapter 3 where Paul talks about the work that they do is uh, is burned up because it was hay, wood, and stubble. And they enter narrowly, escaping the flames. Now, as a member of the church, that should give you a good deal of peace to know that Jesus is going to hold the elders accountable that there's going to be a stricter judgment for men who call themselves elders. That should give you a good deal of peace, knowing that Jesus doesn't miss anything. Elders may fool you, or they may fool other people, but no elder has ever fooled Jesus. And they're going to stand account or they're going to stand before him, they're going to give account. But listen, on a more practical level, Josh, could you go back to the Hebrews 13 verse? There's a practical element to this for you. There's the accountability piece that I read and shudder. But there's a practical piece for you as members of the church. On a more practical level The author of Hebrews is saying it is of no advantage to you that you resist, that you rebel, that you you make life harder for the elders. Don't you know that the weight of ministry is enough to shepherd the people of God by the word of God and give account to the son of God for your souls? Don't you know that's a weight enough? And the author of Hebrews says it's no advantage to you to cause them to groan. The weight of ministry is cause enough for elders to groan. We feel it. And the elders of this church feel that weight. We take it seriously. And so on a practical level, it it doesn't benefit you as a church that the elders groan under the weight of ministry. Now this accountability to Jesus forms part of the basis of the next core value. I hope that I have, have helped you understand a little bit about biblical eldership. If you want to know more, I would encourage you to go to our website, wildwoodchurch.com, and click on resources and blog, and search for an article called, What is an Elder? What is an Elder? And I wrote that article, I don't know, a year ago or so, put it in the Chronicle, uh, so you, you, you may have read it before, but, but it breaks down quite a bit more of what we believe about biblical eldership. But that specifically that accountability piece to Jesus forms part of the basis of the next core value, which is meaningful membership. Here's a question that we wrestle with as elders, that I wrestle with, that I sometimes I lose sleep over this. For whom will the elders give account? And how does the church protect the gospel? ensure that only the true gospel is propelled to the nations? These are two questions that meaningful membership help us to answer. If you look in your Bible, Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. So the question is, who is the flock that I am overseeing. And the elders of this church are overseeing. Am I responsible to oversee every soul that walks in the doors of Wildwood Church? Am I responsible for the souls of people who reject the gospel? I take Peter at his word and I believe that Jesus really is going to hold me and the other elders accountable for shepherding the souls of the people at Wildwood Church. I think that if Paul were alive today and we're doing this apostolic handoff to the elders of the church of Wildwood, he'd call us together and he'd say, pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock of God. And we'd say, who? And he'd say, Wildwood, Wildwood Church, that's who you're responsible for. I was just meeting with local pastors from about 25 different churches in the Quad Cities, evangelical, gospel preaching, Bible believing preachers. And what became very clear in our conversation last Thursday was that we, we don't have authority over each other. We don't have authority over anyone else's church. What we do there is iron sharpens iron. And one of the men said, if you have a problem with me, then you should come to me. And if, and if it doesn't get resolved, then you should go to the elders of my church because it's my church. It's the elders of my church that have authority. So the question is, for whom does Jesus say that the elders of this church have authority and have spiritual responsibility? That's the question. Who are we responsible for? Who do we shepherd and who will we give account for? Now the reality is I have a desire to meet everyone's needs. It is is a difficult thing and, and the truth is I've never turned anyone away based on whether they were a member or not a member of Wildwood Church. Never told anyone why I can't meet with you, can't do your funeral, can't do your wedding, can't do this, can't have lunch, can't pray for you because you're not a member of our church. I have a desire to meet everyone's needs. But if someone doesn't relate to me as pastor, if someone doesn't say, Pastor, you, pastor Brian, you're my pastor, and this is my church, then how can I possibly give account for their souls. See, meaningful membership helps us identify who it is that mutually agrees to this relationship. See, membership is a mutual agreement. We agree that you are part of this church based on your profession of faith in the gospel And you agree that we are your elders to lead you, shepherd you, to watch over your soul. But without that mutual agreement, what is there? It's really just a consumer mentality. And there's a sense in which you just use me without any kind of reciprocal relationship. And I don't think anyone wants to think like that. But when you get to a place where you're in my shoes and you read that you're going to give an account to Jesus for the souls of people, I want to know who I'm responsible for. Does that make sense? I love all of you. I'm concerned for all of you. I'm concerned for those that are watching online I can't even see. But the question is not concern. The question is responsible. For whom am I responsible? responsible and for whom are the elders of this church going to give an account the elders believe that it's important that we know that it's important that we know for whom we will give account it matters to us because we believe the bible we believe peter we believe the author of hebrews we believe paul we take him seriously we take the word seriously it matters to us you matter to us you matter to us but we're not going to force you into a relationship you know that would be it would be abusive for you to not agree to enter into a relationship and for us to say ah but you're going to be there's a mutual agreement and membership is how we make that mutual agreement now church membership is not only about defining this accountability relationship, it's also an affirmation and protection of the gospel. What we believe matters. Doctrine matters. Now, not every doctrinal issue warrants dividing over, but brother and sister, there are things that are worth dividing over. There are things that we must draw a line in the sand because they have eternal consequence. There are some things that we can agree to disagree about. Things that the Bible doesn't give us a clear teaching on. We call these things open-handed issues. Maybe you've heard that term before, open-handed issues. We can disagree about alcohol and dancing, and movies, and tobacco use. We can disagree about how exactly the end times are going to play out. We can disagree about God's sovereignty in election versus man's free will. We can disagree about tithing, about whether it's a tenth or it's a free will offering, or what it is. We can disagree about these things, And if we disagree, we're both going to get to heaven and we're going to say, ah, we were both wrong. <laughs> but the key is that we're both going to get to heaven. Amen. Disagreement in these things represent distinctives, worship style, communion, how we, how we do it, how we fence the table, so to speak. These are open-handed issues. But at the end of the day, we're both going to stand in the presence of Jesus and we're going to say, thank you, Jesus, that you brought in uh, dummies like us. And we thought we were right and and we recognized that we didn't quite have it, but we're both going to be there. Those are open-handed issues. But then there are closed-handed issues. There, There are things that the Bible does give us clear teaching about. And if we disagree, one of us is going to be looking around for the other when we get to heaven, wondering where are they? These are things that if we disagree, have eternal ramifications, that if you don't believe these things, you don't believe the essential doctrines of salvation. These are called heresies. Things like the inerrancy of scripture and the authority of scripture and the trinity and the deity of Christ and his sinless life and the literal death and burial and resurrection of Jesus and sin and justification of the saints by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. Membership in a church helps you as the congregant to know what we believe. You, you might spend a decade at this church before, before we naturally get through all of the doctrinal distinctives that are essential to Wildwood Church. But you can cover the same thing in two weeks in our membership process. Membership allows you and member, you need to know these things. You need to know what a church believes and how it practices. Membership helps the, the member or the attender know what we believe. And it also helps us, the church, know what you believe. And when you, when you get to the place of recognizing that this church is a body, is a family, not a club, then you recognize that you don't really have the right to say, well, I'm just going to be part of this regardless of how the body feels. Anyone can be a member of Sam's Club. But a church says, you believe like we do, You believe the gospel, welcome to our family. We affirm that what you believe is the gospel and not some deviation from it. There are myriad deviations of the gospel. I'll talk about two in just a moment. But membership allows us to have the conversation what do you believe, and what do we believe, and is there mutual agreement here? Now listen, it is the church, not the elders, that Paul holds responsible for false teaching at the church of Galatia. In Galatia eight, he rebukes the church, not the elders, and he says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Even a, even a slight twisting of the gospel is a damnable offense. And Paul was holding the, the people of Galatia, not the elders, responsible I believe that I will give account for your soul, and I believe that Jesus is holding you accountable to ensure that the gospel is being preached in this pulpit. That's a weight, is it not? But how do you know what we believe as a church? How do you know that we believe the right things that matter? Now, some deviations of the gospel are obvious. I believe that the Roman Catholic deviation of the gospel is obvious, that you would have to somehow earn your own salvation through penance. That salvation is not by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I think that's an obvious one. It's a low-hanging fruit. But my concern as as your shepherd is that there may be false gospels that you believe. I believe that there are false gospel preachers that you might read their books. And it's out of concern for you that I share these two things. Two subtle deviations from the gospel that have damnable consequence. And again, Paul said, "Even if an angel were to preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach, let him be cursed." That means cursed to hell. So, Paul and Jesus and the whole New Testament are pretty serious about this gospel, wouldn't you say? The first gospel that you might. Believe or you might want to believe or accept some of the teachings of is what is called the prosperity gospel or the word of faith movement or the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Now, listen, I don't usually say names, but I'm very concerned that some of you are reading these people like Joel Olstein and T.D. Jake's. And Paula White, and Benny Hinn, and Kenneth Copeland, and Jesse Duplantis, and Stephen Furtick. These men are false teachers. What they teach is false. Satan comes as an angel of light. It is no coincidence that their gospel would be almost gospel. But when you boil the prosperity gospel down, relationship to God becomes a quid pro quo relationship. Sow your seed of faith and make me rich, and God will make you rich. It's a brilliant scheme at making the preacher rich, but it fleeces the flock. Just as the shepherds of Israel fleece the flocks, Ezekiel 34, 2 and 3 says, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. There's nothing new under the sun listen if you're if you're all into some author some pastor some speaker you need to be deadly focused and, and, and you should know does this person preach the gospel and a simple way of knowing that is Google search their name and false teacher or prosperity gospel and discerningly go through and understand and if you have questions church you have elders that are responsible for you in a way that Stephen Furtick is not and Paula White is not and Benny Hinn is not and no other pastor out there personality has been given the responsibility to shepherd your soul but the shepherds of this church and so if you have questions, you should ask us and help us, let us help you discern. Now, we're not into book burning and we're not into, well, this, it's only this. No, but we are into, it's not the gospel. And if you believe something that's not the gospel, what's the consequence? Eternal damnation. David W. Jones says about the prosperity gospel Whether they're talking about the Abrahamic covenant, the atonement, giving, faith, or prayer, prosperity teachers turn the relationship between God and man into a quid pro quo transaction. What does the gospel teach us? What does the gospel teach? The gospel teaches that everything good comes from God as a gift of his grace, not because you've earned it, not because you've coerced him, not because you've, you, you, you've made him do it. Not, he's not responding to you. He's giving you free gifts of grace. The health, wealth, prosperity gospel says that poverty and sickness are evidence of lack of faith. Jesus said you will be hated because of your faith. James says, don't think that it's strange that you would suffer in this life. Paul says that our suffering in this life is not even worth comparing to the weight of glory that's going to be revealed to us in the next. Be careful, church. Now, in this regard, my responsibility is to warn you. You will never find me in your home taking books off yourself. My responsibility is simply to warn you, and you have been warned. Amen? Amen. 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 You're welcome. Now, the prosperity gospel is not the only modern day false gospel, and listen, there were false false gospels from the beginning. I mean, from from day one of the church, they were dealing with false gospels, right? So, so prosperity gospel is not the first. And it's not the only modern day false gospel that I'm concerned that you might be believing or at least reading the people that that advocate for it. The other one that I wanna talk about is what's known as the queer gospel. The queer gospel denies the sinfulness of homosexuality and various forms of sexual sin. And it's being widely embraced, not only by mainline denominations which left biblical Christianity decades ago, but even evangelical churches. And there's one in particular that I want to warn you about, not because, again, I hesitate to to talk about names, but I know that he's on your bookshelf. His name is Andy Stanley. And for decades, he has appeared to be an evangelical preacher. I was worried about him when he unhitched from the Old Testament. When he says Christians need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament and focus only on the resurrection of Jesus. And I read 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul says that Jesus died in accordance to the scriptures. Who's he talking about? Or what's he talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament. So Andy Stanley says we need to unhitch from the Old Testament so that it's not a stumbling block. Well, the problem is that when you unhitch from God's standard of righteousness, it leads you into all kinds of heresy. And in particular, Andy Stanley announced either this previous week or the week before that he's doing a conference called the Unconditional Conference and two of the speakers are men who are married to men. And they aim to get to the quieter middle and have a conversation about the sin of homosexuality or specifically what they would call how to, how to uh, be good parents to kids who identify in the LGBTQ array. The problem is that there is no quieter middle. There's only two sides of the story. And the Bible has been settled for 2000 years. It is now those that would advocate for the LGBTQ agenda that are screaming loud and clear. Andy Stanley has gone off the rails. And if a man is able to go off the rails, he was never really on it. Perhaps he was able to fool certain people. And again, I'm confident that he's on yourself. And I'm not going to go take it off. But I'm warning you about him. If we deny the sexual sin is sin... What becomes of justification? It's not necessary. What about repentance? Don't need it. If we believe, as the queer gospel posits, that sexuality is innate, unchangeable, not a choice, then what becomes of sanctification? It's gone. Jesus and Paul's repeated warnings that the sexually immoral will not inherit the earth become moot and irrelevant. This is not the gospel. The prosperity gospel is not the gospel and the queer gospel is not the gospel. But there is a gospel for queer people. Praise the Lord. There is good news for people struggling with the sin of homosexuality and gender dysphoria and any other form of sexual immorality like pornography or fornication, cohabitation, adultery, lust. There is a gospel for people that struggle, that sin in the ways that the Bible calls sin. And it's the gospel of grace. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it alone has the power to save. Paul says in Romans 1.16. The gospel teaches that our wretched, sinful state is in fact innate. They're right. To an extent. Your sexual immorality is innate. No one has to choose to be sinful. Sinful. We are born this way. They're right about that. But it's not only our sexuality, it's our pride, our selfishness, our wicked tongues, our anger, our jealousy. All of this is innate. We're all born with this. The gospel teaches that we all fall short of the glory of God. This is far from an, a condemnation of homosexuals or folks with gender dysphoria who deny the created order, who deny what God made them. This is not a condemnation. It is a calling out of their sin, just as I call out your pride and the Lord calls out my pride. This is a calling out of sin so that there would be repentance. In salvation and eternal life. The Bible teaches that, or the gospel teaches that the wages of sin is death and that we all deserve the wrath of God. That is what we've earned. The gospel teaches that it is the Holy Spirit who gives us new birth, a fresh start, and makes us totally new from the inside out. There is a reality. You were born that way. And the Holy Spirit causes you to be born anew, made new, made right in Christ. Unless you are born again, Jesus said, you cannot see the kingdom of God. The gospel teaches that we are saved by faith, faith in the Son of God. That he is who he says he is and you are who you, or excuse me, who he says you are. It teaches that saving faith, which comes from God at our regeneration, will result in life transformation as the Holy Spirit causes you to be conformed to the image of the Son of God. Brother and sister, that's the gospel. That is what Jesus holds you and me accountable for to protect, and to propel to all the nations. And there are far too many churches who are capitulating to culture in order to be relevant out of fear that someone's going to make fun of them or mock them or persecute them. And you have a choice to make. You may not like the fact that I spoke on the prosperity gospel because one of your favorite preachers or authors was named. You may not like the fact that I called out the queer gospel because you want to believe that love is love and it's okay to be gay. You have a choice to make. You have a choice to make. Repent and believe the gospel? Follow Jesus? Or face his certain and final judgment? Folks, ask the gospel. Biblical eldership and meaningful membership are our best efforts at protecting that and propelling that to all the nations. Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace. I pray, Lord, that you would soften hearts. Even those that might initially reject it, I pray that you would help them to wrestle with the word. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do a work in their lives. I pray that if there has not been regeneration, that there would be regeneration, there would be new birth and faith in Jesus. Lord, I thank you that you are long-suffering with us. I thank you that you're patient with us. Help us to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. And so if you're in the Quad Cities, let me invite you to personally join us in person for our gatherings on Sundays at 9 a.m. and 1040. If you're not in the Quad Cities, I want to encourage you to go find a local church that teaches the Bible, that serves the community, that loves Jesus, that gives grace. Well, hey, thanks again for watching, and we hope that you were blessed.